Open your Bible tonight to Psalm 69. Psalm 69, you got me, Dean? Go ahead and open your Bible if uh, we need to switch something up here. <laughs> test, 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 test. <laughs> you want me to grab something else, Dean? All right. I'll, well, tell you what, open your Bible to Psalm 69. I'll just project my voice here. When this thing works, uh, it's going to, you know, cover your ears. But um, Psalm 69 is where we're going to be tonight uh, to the uh, a Psalm of David. Uh, Wayne, why don't you let me. Test, test. All right. Very good. Thanks, Dean. Much better. Thanks, Lynn. Psalm 69. Um, Elena was just uh, playing, this is my father's world. One of the uh, lines in that song, of course, is, though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And in Psalm 69, um, David is going to be um, expressing the wrong seems so strong, and, um, and yet uh, trust, giving his placing his confidence in the Lord. And so we're going to do that tonight as well. Psalm 69, uh, let's give our attention to the Psalm of David. <clears throat> Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me. Those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let, those, let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O oh Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O oh God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, comforters but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. 
Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down. And they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, we thank you for this psalm from our brother, our elder brother David, uh, so many years ago, and yet, Lord, experiencing um, so many of the things that we experience in this fallen, broken world. And so I pray, Lord, that you'd give us, uh, Lord, ears to hear you speak to us tonight, and we'll give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week as we uh, studied Psalm 68, we noted that Psalm 68 is a psalm of victory, uh, that uh, God has established his king, Jesus Christ reigns as king over this fallen, broken world, uh, Jesus sovereignly ordering all things, and so the defining characteristic of our life is victory, not defeat. But in Psalm 69, where we see that our victory is experienced in the midst of trials and through the trials, that um, we, uh, Paul says we're more than conquerors, if you remember in Romans chapter 8. But if you, if you remember the context, when Paul says we are more than conquerors, uh, he places that in a really interesting context. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or, or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, no, for your sake, we are put to death all the day long. We're as sheep to be slaughtered. But we are more than conquerors in all of that. Uh, we conquer in the context of strife, of trial and trouble and pain. Uh, the, the, uh, in Acts chapter 14, you hear of, of Paul um, going and encouraging the saints in Acts chapter 14 and encouraging them with these words, uh, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And uh, you might ask, well, how is that comforting? Well, it's comforting because you realize this is not a, uh, the trials that, that we're facing and experiencing, it's not a bug, it's a, it's a, it's a feature, Right? This is how it works, that God calls us to victory in Jesus Christ, but we experience in the context and the reality of that victory the pain of life, and that pain is real. In Psalm 69, David is speaking um, just in the context of his own trial, his, his tribulation. We're not told exactly what the historical context is here, but let's give our attention. As David first, we'll just look at David's pain and then David's prayer. And then we'll look at the imprecations. Uh, David's pain is where we'll begin. David starts with a desperate cry. Save me, O God. Uh, it, it's, it's the cry of a man who's about to drown. And that's David. He's drowning. The waters have come up to my neck. I sink in a deep mire 
where there is no foothold, nothing to hold on to. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. Uh, there's a note of panic in his, in his voice. If, if you've ever um, sensed um, yourself in some moment of grave danger, maybe you're, you're walking a trail and you begin to slip or you're in the water and, and suddenly um, you swallow a bunch and, and you get panicky. Well, Dave, that's where David is. And part of his panic is that uh, in his trial, God seems to be absent. So verse 3, he'll say, I've been crying out, crying out so much that my throat is parched. I'm hoarse. And I've been looking for God. I've been waiting for God, but he doesn't show up. And his eyes are growing tired as he waits and waits, but God doesn't come. And the, and the seeming absence of God, his heavenly helper and friend, is just made all the more painful by the the present reality and the number and the vehemence of his enemies, people who are after him, verse 4, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. And to make matters worse, David is not just being attacked, but the attack is unwarranted. They, they are, the crowds are hating him without cause. They're attacking him not with truth, but with lies. And they're lies that carry a punch. Uh, David doesn't mention the specific nature of the accusations, but they are clearly serious and they're shameful. There's reproach and shame and dishonor, verse 19, that uh, are attached to them. Kidner writes, there are few wounds as deep as those expressed in the words reproach, shame, dishonor. David is being publicly shamed. He's the subject of wicked slander. Verse 12, I am the talk of those who sit in the gate and drunkards make songs about me. In other words, the people on Facebook and Twitter are having a field day. Uh, open letters have been written about him and published online. His accusers pronouncing uh, his guilt, rendering their judgment, no process, no trial, no facts required, just a storm of shame and dishonor. There's nothing really new under the sun. It happens all the time. Our culture has gotten used to it. Furtado says, in these verses, the cries of our own soul comes to expression when we experience deep distress compounded by people seeking our destruction rather than our restoration. David has been, has been alienated. Uh, family and friends have cut him off. Verse 8, I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Uh, to top it off, David is being pressed to pay back what he didn't steal. What I did not steal, must I now restore? In other words, he's, uh, he's being pressed to pay for his quote-unquote wrongs, though he's not guilty of the wrongs. It's like uh, someone uh, accusing you of stealing $1,000 and then um, insisting that you pay back the $1,000. Well, it's, I didn't take it, right? It, it's just profoundly unjust. And that's exactly where David finds himself. And it's excruciatingly painful. Verse 20, reproaches have broken my heart. This hurts. So that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Verse 29, I am afflicted and in pain. One of the commentators points out that David is suffering as uh, only a godly man can suffer. You see, wicked men um, have this ability to easily shrug off charges of wrongdoing. They have hard hearts, 
And A, they don't care what you think. It just doesn't matter. And charges of, of, of sin are more like crowns than thorns. They boast in evil, in doing evil. And so um, a, a wicked person is just not a, 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 impacted in, in the same way that a godly person would. You see, because a godly person has a sensitive conscience, a, a conscience that cares about truth and, and morality and righteousness. So, so because, you see, David cares about doing wrong the ch- and he's concerned to do right, Charges of wrong are deeply unsettling. It's, it's deeply painful. If, you, if you've been ever uh, deeply slandered or falsely accused, well, you know the sense of it. It's a devastating experience if you care about righteousness, if you care about pursuing what is true. There are a couple of things in this psalm that um, are wonderful evidences of grace in a person's life, particularly in, in a time of accusation or trial. One of the evidences of, is that in a time of, of trial, whether it be an illness, whether it be some tragedy, whether it be um, this, the trauma of being charged like this, you find this throughout the Psalter, where David will, will be expressing his pain, uh, lamenting what's happening, and then somewhere in the psalm, he'll go to self-reflection. Verse 5, Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs that I have done are not hidden from you. When a, when a child of God goes through trial, tribulation of some sort, they almost can't help but reflect on their sin, the, the truth of their sin. It's one of the telling differences between a soft heart and a hard heart. You see, a hard heart will respond to accusations with anger and self-righteous indignation even if the charge is true. They just lash out. But a soft heart will humbly acknowledge the reality of sin in their life, even when the specific charge is not true, when it's false. And it's so precious to see David's response here. He, there's no self-righteousness. There's pain. This hurts but he humbly acknowledges the reality of sin in his life. Lord, you know. You know what I am. You know my folly. I've been incredibly stupid. None of it is hidden from you. You know the truth about me. I think it's a wonderful evidence of, of grace. Even when a child of God is falsely accused, he doesn't, it doesn't render them bitter, but makes them sensitive to their own sin. And so David, you see, prays not just as a victim, David prays as an offender. Yes, he is being grievously slandered and wronged, but he's also done grievous wrongs, and he recognizes that he doesn't, he doesn't pretend any differently. You see, and it's precisely that humble, honest acknowledgement that gives integrity to his complaint and his prayer. He really is a godly man, suffering unjustly. There's another telling evidence of the difference between David and his enemies here, between, the difference between a hard and a soft heart. Um, and the, the, the question is, what do you care about most when you are falsely accused? There are two things that David cares about more than his reputation. He cares about the welfare of God's people and the glory of God's name. Verse 6. After David has acknowledged in verse 5 the reality of his own sin, 
Verse 6, let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. David feels the weight of his office. And he, and he feels the, the truth of his sin there as, as the king of Israel. He's not just another guy on the street. He's the shepherd of Israel. The, the people of Israel are God's sheep, and they look to him to be their shepherd. And, and they trust that, that David will love the Lord and that David uh, will be a godly man seeking godly ends through godly means. That's what they, that's what they want to believe about David. And, and, and those things are true about David. He does love the Lord. He, he is pursuing godly ends through godly means. But David also knows the reality of his own weakness. The truth about his own sin. David knows it. And in the context of this, these false accusations, in a sense, you know, you, David can feel how awful it would be if they were true. And Lord, there is sinful truth in my life. And, and please, Lord, don't let what is true what is sinfully true about me, shame those who trust in you. Don't let your people be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. I tell you, as a, as a, as a pastor, that comes close to home. It's the prayer of every true pastor. Uh, Lord, don't let my weakness, don't let my sin, don't let my stupidity bring shame and dishonor on your people. You can't, you can't help but feel that way. As you, as you feel the weight of the office and, and, the, and the, how, how God cares and loves his sheep and how easily our stupidity and our sin can bring shame to God's people. Secondly, David cares for the glory of God's name. Verse 7, it is for your sake I have borne reproach that dishonor covers my face. Verse 9, zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. David realizes that his enemies are attacking him precisely because David is so zealous for God, zealous for the truth of God, zealous for the house of God, zealous for the glory of God. And those who despise God despise David. He's suffering for righteousness' sake. There really are evil people in the world. There are evil people in Israel who care not at all about God. And David is suffering their wrath for righteousness' sake. Uh, the same is, is true today, of course. There's almost no more certain way to be, uh, experience reproach than to be devoted to God, devoted to God's truth, taking a stand for it. Take a stand against the cultural lies of our world today and you will quickly feel uh, the reproach and maybe even the public shaming. Well, David is being attacked because of his devotion but notice that in his devotion, and David does a wonderful thing in the, in the psalm, he, he, as he expresses the pain, he turns to the Lord in prayer. Verse 13, I think, is such a beautiful verse. But as for me, that's just a good start. But as for me, he's talked about the enemies. He's talked about how people have abandoned him and how they're um, unjustly accusing him. But as for me, my prayers to you, O Lord. As for me, my prayers to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. The lament takes this beautiful turn at this point where David moves from crying out for help, in a sense, to laying hold of help. As for me, he's, he's talking about himself and maybe to himself. 
He's, he's, he's moving from grieving what feels like the absence of God to laying hold of what he knows to be true about God. It's a critical step. Uh, we tend to live by how we feel. And we think about how we feel. We reflect on how we feel. And we act out of how we feel. And, uh, well, that will always lead to just a crater, a pit. Um, Psalm 42 shows us the way out, right? Um, I'm sinking. The, the, the waters are rising. Why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God. I will yet praise Him. Um, David, that's exactly what he does. He puts his hope in God here. He's moving from mourning the realities of his trouble. It is real, but it's not the only thing that's real. It's not the ultimate thing that's real. He, he lays hold of God's gracious character, God's saving promises. Notice, look at verse 16. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good according to your abundant mercy. Turn to me. Now we suddenly have new realities coming into the scene. It's not just a desperate man drowning and, and hordes um, assaulting. Now we have a sovereign God who's, who is full of steadfast love, who's, uh, who's good. A God who is full of abundant mercy. Not a little mercy, abundant mercy. A God who is great in compassion. A God who David now is, 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 comes to understand will, will answer him at the acceptable time. In other words, when God's ready to. God has not abandoned him. God is just on his own timetable, accomplishing his sovereign purposes in, in love and truth. And at an acceptable time, God will respond. See, that, this is such a, an essential element of, of true faith. It's the difference that faith makes, functioning faith makes in a time of great grief or trial. Functioning faith will lead us into the reality of God's steadfast love and saving faithfulness. It'll penetrate the grief and the sense of abandonment. Whatever you're feeling, saving faith penetrates that and allows us to lay hold of things that are eternally true about God. Doesn't deny the reality of the pain. David's not denying it, any of it. But it just doesn't stop there. It doesn't settle there. The pain is not all that there is. It's not even the most deepest thing that's true. God is the deepest thing that's true. The steadfast love of God, the abundant mercy of God, the saving faithfulness of God, those are the deepest truths. Those are the things that provide an anchor for David, a foundation. There he's got a place to stand. And because those things are, are true, David's standing on those realities. Now praise, Lord, draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me. Verse 19, Lord, you know all my foes. David's getting the sense, Lord, you've got this. You understand. You're not far away. You haven't forsaken me. God is near. And that confidence in God now shifts the prayer to the imprecations. Verses 22 through 28. It's an example of what we call imprecatory prayers. These are prayers for God to judge and curse his enemies. Notice David isn't saying, let me at him. He's not taking vengeance on himself, but he's praying for God to bring judgment on those who are opposing him. Uh, uh, Robert Godfrey says this. He says, these imprecations are the most terrifying in the Psalter. David prays that his enemies may be impoverished and oppressed, that they may lose home and heritage, 
But even more, he prays that they may be damned. Quote, may they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Well, commentators and people struggle with those words. What do we make of those kinds of words in the Psalms? Uh, the, 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 the temptation is to quickly rush to say, well, that was just the Old Testament. And we live now in the New Testament. And in some sense, that's true. But before we move there, I think it's just good to, to recognize God does have enemies in the world. Um, we, we should certainly feel this way about Satan and all of his hosts, shouldn't we? We would recognize that. Um, John will say friendship with the world is enmity with God. In some sense, we need to choose a side. Are we for God or are we for the enemies of God? Who, where do we belong? Where do we fit? What's our home? And you find in the book of Revelation where the saints, when God does judge his enemies in the book of Revelation, the saints rejoice as the smoke goes up from Babylon. There should be some part of us that is yearning for God to be glorified and yearning for evil to be put to an end. For the whole thing to be finally fully shut down, for, for God's enemies to be destroyed, for evil to go where it belongs, and for righteousness to cover the earth as the water covers the sea. So, so certainly that ought to be a tendency, a um, something that we experience in our own life. God, make it right. We're, we're so tired of the evil, tired of the wickedness, tired of the death. Let righteousness reign. And so there's certainly that that belongs in the Christian life. But there is a, a difference. Um, and Psalm 69 kind of leads us there. Psalm 69 is, is full of New Testament realities. Again, just to read from Godfrey, he summarizes so well. Godfrey says, Psalm 69 contains some of the clearest anticipations of Christ and his work. Jesus explained his utter commitment to the cause of God, even to death, by quoting Psalm 69. Zeal for your house has consumed me. You see that in John chapter 2, 17. Part of his suffering on the cross is prophesied in verse 3. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, I thirst. So he's quoting Psalm 69, verse 3. The psalm also prophesies the mockery and scorn that Jesus will suffer, and in particular prophesies he will be offered vinegar to assuage his thirst. Acts 1.20 quotes and applies Psalm 69.25 to explain the loss of Judas. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. Paul in Romans 11 verses 9 and 10 quotes Psalm 69.22.23 to explain the loss of the non-elect in Israel. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. So the New Testament authors knew Psalm 69 and, and quoted it freely. Jesus knew Psalm 69 and, and, and read in it uh, the experience of his own suffering. But it, it, and it's that that makes the, the glory of Jesus shine so beautifully. Uh, you see, Jesus experienced everything that David experienced just multiplied a thousandfold. Jesus was without sin and yet was falsely accused of being a drunkard. He was accused of being a friend of sinners. He was accused of being a blasphemer, which is a shameful charge. It's a charge worthy of death. And of course, he's being charged with blasphemy because he says that he was the son of the Father, which is absolutely true. All the reproaches of wicked men fell on Jesus precisely because he was so devoted to the house of God. A zeal for God's name consumed him. You can see that as Jesus cleanses the temple. 
And Jesus could say, as the perfectly innocent man, he could say with a depth of profundity that David couldn't have known, reproaches have broken my heart so that I'm in despair. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I looked for pity, but there was none. For comforters, I found none. The disciples fled. Everyone fled. Jesus died alone. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. That was the experience of Christ. But the glory of Jesus is what happens next. You see, uh, from David's mouth, after he reflects on all that's taken place, we get the imprecations. Let their table become a snare. When they are at peace, let it be a trap. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be damned. That's what David says. But what does Jesus say? Because he could have said all that. He could have absolutely justly said, Father, hold this sin against them. May they never be acquitted. May they never be counted righteous. Allow them to be damned. And he would have been perfectly right and just to say it. But it's not what he says. Instead, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, in his death, Jesus poured out grace on his enemies, the ones who put him to death. He, put him, he, he poured out grace on us, former enemies of God, in our nature, enemies of God. And the gospel then changes things. As Jesus has poured out his grace upon us, that frees us to suffer tribulation in a different way. We don't need to seek vengeance. We don't, we don't, um, we don't need to, to make it right in our time or our way. Be, be, because of what Jesus has done for us, we are actually set free in a beautiful way to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us as Jesus taught. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is by, uh, by trusting in the abundant mercy and steadfast love and saving faithfulness of God. The gospel will have to go so deep in your life, so deep in your heart, that when you face the person who's angrily accusing you, and when they're, when they're maybe doing their worst to bring reproach and shame upon you, somewhere, somehow the gospel frees us as we trust in the Lord to love, to, to show grace, to love our enemies, because we're, we're standing on a rock. We're standing on, on what is ours in Jesus Christ, the abundant mercy and steadfast love and saving faithfulness of God, and knowing that in Him we are more than conquerors, even in the, even in the pain. Friends, I'd just like you to, to think about what this looks like in your life. Where has um, bitterness maybe taken hold? Where um, you've been gripped by an inability to forgive? The hurt, the pain, the trauma of it is just too much? I think this psalm calls us to the freedom to love. The freedom to, to trust the Lord in a way that uh, our life, uh, can be an instrument of grace to other people. And we recognize that, okay, here's the context, this is what I'm experiencing, but because God is for me and God is good, um, I, I am free in Jesus Christ to do the unthinkable, to love and show grace. And, and we're looking forward to a day when it's all done. Notice the psalm ends that way. 
David's looking forward to the time when, when um, God is going to save Zion. He's going to build up the cities of Judah and the people will, are going to live there and possess it in the presence of God. The offspring of his servants will inherit it and those whose love his name shall dwell in it. David looks forward to what God has promised to do and we do the same. Uh, in the context of, of, of things that are really hard, we look forward to one day it's, it's going to be much different. As God finally reveals the new heaven and the new earth and, and, and all evil is gone, including our very own, and there's no more death and no more crying and no more pain, and everything is made right as we live in the presence of God, that is absolutely our destiny. And that frees us again in Jesus Christ, in the context of pain, in the context of accusations and, and tribulations of any sort, to trust, to love, to experience grace, and to show grace. May God grant it. Amen. Oh God in heaven, there are hurting hearts here tonight of betrayals, of um, assaults, hearts that have been wounded maybe by a parent's words a long time ago, maybe by a spouse's words or actions. Maybe just by a thoughtless comment or an angry response or charge. And bitterness has taken hold. The hurt is real. And Father, it does hurt to be assaulted. It hurts to be betrayed. But Lord, I thank you that in the reality of those experiences, there is a deeper reality, the reality of your love and grace to us in Jesus Christ, your your abundant mercy to us. So that, Lord, our life does not need to be defined by the things that wound us, but can be defined by the love that saved us, the grace that reached out to us, that made a promise to us to make it all new. And Father, I, I pray that your people would have the ability to take then these truths into the reality of where we live and the hurt that we feel and that we would experience the power of God to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to be so confident of your, of your love to us that it frees us to do what we can't do ourselves. And Lord, I thank you that one day it really will be all made new. And we look forward and long for that day. Until then, Lord, keep us trusting in you. Keep us, Lord, living not by how we feel, but, what we know, but by what we know, to be true about you, true about your love, true about your promises. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing Christ, the sure and steady anchor.
And even better, the anchor will hold fast to us, right? He will never let us go. And so as you go now into the week that God has ordained for you, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you until we are safely home. Amen.